Bone Knowing, a true story of coming to life in the face of impending loss. Months, Chapter 11, Going Down, February 1997. Once that tenacious seed took hold in my womb, it seemed Tom's final mission had been accomplished. He's begun to slide. A month after the rotorooter surgery, tests came back showing metastasis to the liver and lung. Tom decided against the pending surgery that would exchange his bladder for an outside pea bag. He rode the fence for a couple extra weeks until it became clear to him that surgery was a moot point, serving only to make him and his doctor feel like they were doing something. The reconstruction of his body was too much to undergo for too little payoff. It wasn't about preserving erectile function. It was about preserving dignity. Instead, he agreed to a round of potent systemic chemotherapy for a shot at some extra time now that we have a baby en route. You just never know, he said, indicating that he, too, held a tiny ray of hope. Though it's a sickening kind of deja vu to be back at the place where the pivotal news was broken just a couple months back, I'm trying to cop a better attitude, seeing that we're in here for the treatment and not prognosis. The room is hospital green, and there's a sheer curtain between Tom and the other cancer veteran. Tom chants in a commanding whisper, Kill it, kill it as the potent brew enters his veins from a tube that winds up a pole to a pouch of toxic chemotherapy drugs hanging overhead. Watch it, man. You're the one who's always telling me to be careful what I wish for, I say from the bedside. What if the chemo doesn't know you mean cancer? He closes his eyes, exasperated with me. That's not helpful. I just want it to work, that's all, I defend. Look. I've got a battle going on inside me, and the chemo's a cutthroat warrior. This is no time for Mr. Nice Guy to surround the cancer in white light. I know, I know. Just make sure you're clear which side you're on, huh? Remember, you've been calling this stuff poison for a long time. Good point, he says, but I know he just wants to end this outer rift so he can get on with what's happening inside him. I'm sorry my fear adds to his minefield of guilt trips, though I've never told him so. Over the next few weeks, Tom struggles to view chemo as a friend versus foe. It's too late, though. His insides have been scoured clean with the Gerson treatment, only to have the chemo absorb into every cell and deliver a triple whammy. Everything that can go wrong does. He suffers allergic reactions, constipation, hemorrhoids, nausea, vomiting, dry mouth, cracked lips, infections, disorientation. You name it, he gets it. It looks like the medicine might just kill him before it gets to the cancer. Tom goes from rehabilitation after the first surgery, gathering enough energy to work from home, even officiating a couple of wrestling matches, to bedbound. It's shocking how quickly things have deteriorated. I'm whirling in a frenzy trying to catch up to the implications. For now, Tom can't handle River without help, and he probably shouldn't be driving. Often he's confused and needs me to track his treatment protocol and cancel any work he has scheduled. Every morning, even before opening my eyes, I cross my fingers, please let this be a good day. Late Saturday afternoon, Tom calls me into the bathroom in an urgent voice, just as I'm about to change River's diaper. Not another puke, I think, 
My life is about body waste. All I deal with these days is shit, vomit, piss, and blood. Obligation waits my breath and thudding footsteps as I make my way from one bathroom to the other. What? I say in exasperation. Tom sits naked on the closed toilet with a huge clump of wet brown hair in his hand. Instantly I comprehend, and it's as if we both realize yet again he really does have cancer, as in the dying kind. This isn't a passing flu bug. From this point forward, cancer won't be the secret he can contradict with his appearance until he drops the bomb, blowing people away at social gatherings. Frowning, I press his head into my belly and run my fingers through what's left of his hair. I feel for his braid. It's secure, though I dare not tug at it. Your pony, I say, fingering each notch of braid that marks his eight-year cancer journey. He had started growing it as a reminder to himself to live fully, not to wait. Even when it was a wee three weaves long, he used the rubber bands from Eliza's braces to secure it and showed it off at every opportunity. Coaches at baseball games would request the blue with the ponytail. It had become his survivor trademark. I know. His chest begins to heave. River hears us and waddles down the hallway to join us, his diapers swollen. What's wrong, Daddy? He pushes his way into the tiny bathroom and picks up a wad of hair from the floor. Tom pulls away and wipes his eyes. He conjures up a clear, gentle voice. River, the medicine I'm taking to help me get better makes my hair fall out. I'm sad to lose my hair, especially my braid. Can me see? Tom lowers his head for River to examine. Jen, can you get the scissors? I want to salvage the braid, he says. Already it isn't his braid. In the cramped bathroom, we conduct a homemade ceremony to cut it off. Nothing fancy, no recipe of ritual to follow. Simply a profound shift in the way we go about the task. Makes me wonder why I don't live my entire life from this state. Time moves much slower than the pace I'm accustomed to. Every sense is heightened. The smell of Dr. Bronner's eucalyptus soap on Tom's skin. The silky feel of the brown hair I brush out and braid one last time. The sound of each strand surrendering to the blade as I cut through hundreds of them. The image of Tom's braid lying in his hands and River stroking it as if it were a dead animal. And the strange feeling to see something so Tom separate from him. So many little deaths along the way. River looks up when he hears me sniffle and pulls a hand towel from the rack and then grabs a washcloth from the shower. Offering one to Tom and one to me, he says, Here, crying wags for you. I kneel down and pull him into me. Oh, thank you, my little pea in the pod. Mama and Daddy will be okay, don't you worry. His sweetness overwhelms me, and at the same time I'm sad that he's already becoming the little man. River helps me clean the bedside table and tie a purple ribbon on Tom's braid. We place it on his jewelry box just below a drawing Tom made at one of his support groups of himself with a braid flying behind him in the breeze. We have an altar in the making. One of our New Year's resolutions has been to find a church and attend regularly. It's part of an effort to build ourselves a community that might sustain us through hard times ahead and to give River the sense of a larger family outside his home life where death threatens to pull the rug out. The side benefit is having a Sunday family ritual, a constant among the frequent tides of change. 
Before church, we have an established routine of walking to Mal's Market for cinnamon rolls and a newspaper. Today, I stay behind to stock up on juices because Tom feels up to going without the assistance of a wheelchair. When they get back, Tom huffs. Hey, little man, come sit. <sighs> Let's read the funnies. River joins him, hands sticky with cinnamon roll gunk and spit. Tom's dime a dozen reading glasses slide down the bridge of his ever-narrowing Romanesque nose. He pushes them up frequently as he reads. River listens and giggles, snuggling into the crook of Tom's arm, completely engaged for the full page of comics. I watch them from the kitchen counter. I'm awed, like I was back when we first met, by Tom's ability to live in each moment. It's a truth about him I'm coming to doubt less lately. On the drive to church, we talk about the baby that will enter our world in just a few short months. What baby's name? River asks. Hmm. If it's a boy, maybe Zephyr. That means warm breeze, I say, putting one hand out the window to surf the air. Whenever we call him, we'll be reminded of an angel passing by, and we'll think of Daddy. It's out before I can retrieve it. Daddy isn't an angel, River insists, like he's too old to be fooled by the tricks of grown-ups. No, you're right, River, he's not. I glance at Tom. You're not, I mean. I figure my cards are already on the table, so I may as well explain them. Daddy's trying his best to stay alive, but he might die by the time the baby comes. When he dies, he'll be a spirit in heaven, an angel. When does Daddy die? River doesn't go for soft answers. Only God knows, I say, digging myself deeper with each word. Can we ask God at church? Tom turns, resting his arm over the seat so he can see River when he speaks. Those kind of things are mysteries, little man. The universe, also called God, by the way, keeps them that way, kind of like a surprise. Don't worry, I'll tell you as soon as I know for sure. We'll just have to wait and see. What died, Daddy? Die means my body won't work at all. It won't eat, talk, move, nothing. If that happens to my body, I will have to go be an angel. You'll feel me in your heart, but you won't see me or, or play with me. Tom's voice trails off as his eyes well up. Mine have already spilled over, blurring the road as I drive. Why you cry, Mama? River asks when he catches my eye in the rearview mirror. It makes me really sad to think about Daddy dying, not being here with our family someday. My voice breaks on the last syllable. Tom puts his hand on mine, and we sniffle without words all the way to church. River goes back to his toy, having had his fill of conversation with adults. We park ten minutes late, our standard. I check my mascara, preparing to face the world. As I open the back door and unclip River from his car seat, he declares, But Mama, baby is a girl. I bet you're right, I say, taking his hand, leading him to Sunday school. I put great faith in young children so close to the source from whence they came. Upstairs, Tom and I sit through the service uncomfortably. Partly his back is bothering him again, and that triggers a silent worry of bone metastasis. 
and partly because the minister is preaching healing by way of positive thoughts again. It was one of our attractions to this church while we were still riding the bandwagon. Over time, and especially after walking through some of the dark valleys, it's become an increasingly evident trap. Ironic, but it's turning us into rebels against good attitudes. Anything glossing over what is real, even ugly, escalates our cause and turns my ears beat red. I'm just a hair away from standing up and screaming at Miss Goody Thinking Minister that she's missing the point. Every word out of her mouth implies Tom's failure. It only takes one good success story, the kind when the person pops off their deathbed and into full recovery, to set up a dying person for a million if-only-you-do-this-or-try-that from well-meaning people who just can't stand to let death happen, as it will to us all. Even those who are supposed to know better don't escape the human error. I hope, deep inside, where he answers only to himself, Tom knows better. When the service is over, I'm frustrated and pursue help anyway. If we can't get a supportive message, perhaps some helping hands. Negativity blows it for me. The coffee hour greeter tells me they don't have an organized program of help. I start to regress, thinking they are right. Maybe I caused Tom's cancer with all of my worry and worst-case scenario preparations. It's probably the same reason they don't help me. I'm not exactly putting out a shiny penny persona these days. Churches are supposed to help, no matter how one thinks or believes. I know this because I got it loud and clear growing up in a Methodist congregation where my parents gave. Taking in a refugee family, mowing the parsonage lawn, and fixing things as needed. I hadn't realized how empowering it was to be on the helper end until now, when I find myself asking for help. I'm still recovering from the humiliation of having my request denied when, out of the corner of my eye, I see a woman cringe as she listens in. As we leave, she approaches me and offers to babysit. I keep her number in the help file and plan to leave church after Easter. We'll make our own church at home and our own community with people like her. This has been read to you by the author Jennifer Allen, copyright 2009.